Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page and free. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we'll be talking about video game music with our pal, LA Times critic Todd Martins. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we review some new music from Rina Sawayama and Brian Eno. That is a little bit of a track called This Hell by Rina Sawayama, her new album, Hold the Girl. Um, Greg, this is a fascinating artist. Born in Niigata in 1990, moved to Northwest London, uh, Japanese-English artist. Pop force from day one when she began recording her first single, 2013, Sleeping in Waking, a self-titled debut in 2020. A lot of fans all over the map, genre-wise, of her music that she's collaborated with, from Charlie XCX to uh, Elton John, from Lady Gaga to, uh, you know, you, you name it. This is an artist who has garnered a lot of attention this album has been highly anticipated for some time. Let Us Dive In, second studio album by Japanese-British singer Rina Sawayama. This is a track uh, called Frankenstein. We'll come back and we will give our opinions of Hold the Girl. That is Frankenstein from the new Rina Sawayama album, Hold the Girl. Uh, I'm glad you chose that track, uh, Jim. I, I I love that track as well. I love it. That, that, uh, that hook, I don't want to be your monster anymore. You know, and, and the video's a hoot. I don't often like follow up a single <laughs> and look at the video, but she's going through, you know, she's this mousy uh, young woman at first, and then the mirror monster jumps out and takes over the club, and <laughs> it, it's fun. She's all over the... I mean, if you like that song, don't hold your breath because, uh, you know, the other 12 are completely different. I mean, it's 13 songs and jumping from style to style, era yeah. to era. You, w- you would literally, if you just pick two songs randomly, not even recognize at first they were from the same album. Right. Uh, it, uh, she co-wrote all 13 songs. She co-produced all but one of those songs. Uh, so, you know, she's a multifaceted artist. She's very mm-hmm. much on top of, of what's going on here. She's a student of pop history. She name drops uh, all sorts of heroes. And I I almost hear this album as like, you know, for lack of a better term, a tribute album to her influences. Well, and they're not always easy to figure out. We we bumped in with a little bit of this hell, 
which is, uh, you know, it could be a relationship song. You know, I don't want to be in this hellish situation with you anymore, but also is sort of about our social media era because she name drops uh, Britney, Lady Di, and Whitney Houston, right. all of whom were, were, you know, beloved and then pilloried by the forces, the fickle forces of popular well, culture. Well, there's a, there's a lot of social commentary yeah. on this record uh, as opposed to her first record, which is really kind of diving into her childhood. This is more about the, you know, the, the, the world outside of that. That, you know, she's talking about everything from mental health to the the health of her community. You know, yeah. she's representing women of color. She's you know she's uh, identified as bisexual. She's, yeah, LGBTQ you know, she's plus talking rights. About that yeah. community as well. And you know, jumping. I mean, this record covers a span. There's a you know blatant blatant check of Madonna here. You know, like yeah. a prayer is referenced on that uh, on one of the tracks on this record, the title track. up to the, the Taylor Swift's Evermore record, you know, which came out, <laughs> yeah. you know, send my love to John. I mean, that, yeah. that, 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 that belongs on that Taylor Swift record. And I'm sorry for the things I've done, I'm misguided love to my only side, trying to protect you, but I guess I was wrong, so send my love, send my love to John. So, you know, the full range, I mean, there's, it's almost like it reminds me of some of those Lenny Kravitz records in the 90s, yeah. where you could like spot the influence, like who's he, who's yeah, he trying to and, and people, mimic here? And people keep hearing Shania Twain. You know, I, I wish I loved the entire album as much as I love the singles, This Hell and Frankenstein. But a lot of the record, Greg, triggers two alarms for me. It veers into... Disney princess songstress territory at times. And also, you know, Broadway theatricality. And I was like, wow. those songs, man, I, I don't want to hear them again. I guess, I guess my, my biggest problem with it is that is, as skilled as she is at sort of, you know, name-checking and referencing these musical styles, and she's yeah. very good at it. These songs are going to probably sound really good on pop radio. She doesn't One have, at a time. She doesn't have an identity. Who is right, she? Right, what, right. What, what, what is her contribution to that history, you know, so that that's where I kind of lose lose this record. You know, as an album, it's a very uneven listening experience with with those peaks. Uh, you know, the hit singles being being wonderful, and the rest, not so much. Who gives a thought about the fireflies? Short lives of moving light perform their quiet flight. Stars of starless nights. That is a little bit of a song called Who Gives a Thought? 
which is the lead track on an album called Forever and Ever No More, the 29th solo studio album, Mr. Cott, by one Brian Eno. Um, okay, I'll, I can talk for an hour now about who Brian Eno is, <laughs> but let me focus not on the production, uh, you know, producing everyone from Talking Heads to, to you name it, uh, you too, uh, an endless resume, uh, and, and having a unique philosophy in the recording studio that I think is, is one of the most inspiring in musical history. Let's talk about Brian Eno, the artist. Um, four incredibly influential, uh, quote-unquote, pop albums between 1974 and 1977. Uh, those four records uh, were were rock records, mm-hmm. but, but askew in many ways, made by a surrealist fan of Dada. Uh, and uh, that's where a lot of the influence uh, comes from. Um, then he stopped singing. And went ambient. Music to mingle with the knives and forks at dinner, as uh, Eric Satie, Mm. his influence on ambient music, uh, said. Um, There was a notable period in 88, 90, where he sang again. uh, An incredible cover of You Don't Miss Your Water Until the Well Runs Dry Mm -hmm. that popped up amazingly, on Jonathan Demme's soundtrack for Married to the Mob. And then he collaborated with John Cale of the Velvet Underground, a huge influence on Eno, Wrong Way Up. And then he stopped singing again. I interviewed him in, in uh, when Wrong Way Up came out. And I said, Brian, why haven't you sung more? And he, he's like, I didn't think anybody liked my voice. <laughs> and, and, and it was one of those moments where I don't think he was being, uh, I don't think it was like an interview fake moment. He seemed surprised that I loved his voice. You know, it's not an extraordinary voice, but it's a a very English voice, and what he would do with it in the studio when he made quote-unquote pop records was always interesting. Anyway, Eno's been all over social media, and his many fans have been talking about Brian Eno singing again, and indeed he is on this concept album about, you know, the... uh, climate emergency, he calls it. Mm-hmm. Uh, our planet melting and um, uh, deteriorating is another way to look at it. Let's play a track, and we will come back and give our thoughts on uh, on Brian Eno's Forever and Ever No More. This is called Garden of Stars, and uh, he's telling us, these billion years will end. This mm-hmm. earth is dying. These billion years will end. That is Garden of Stars from Brian Eno's new album, Forever and Ever No More. Another one of the cheery songs on a very cheery record. You know, can can I preempt (laughs) you? I mean, the way this works is one of us introduces the album, gives the context, and then critic, the other critic gives the opinion first, and then then we go back and forth. I'm just going to tell you, I hate this album. I hate this album. I got to get that on the record first, because everybody thinks I'm like the Brian Eno butt kisser of all time. Well, I don't hate it. I just don't love it. Um, You know, I think everybody's hoping that he'll make another green world again, especially when he starts singing. But the the, the singing style has changed uh, completely. And he uses a vocoder. Come on. And, you know, know, he, he talks about feelings. There's this statement... 
uh, as sort of an introduction to the record that he's made. Uh, perhaps it's more accurate to say I've been feeling about it, you know, his thoughts. And the music grew out of those feelings. Uh, you know, I think the, the point is that in order to change the direction of the world where it's spiraling into its death, you know, it's, it's, it's in its death spiral. Yeah, hurricanes, we, droughts. Uh, in, order yeah. To, in order to change that trajectory, we need to change the way we feel about it. Right. We're not feeling... And that, to me, communicates a sense of urgency. Like we've got to, we've got to, feel, we've got to love this planet more. Yeah, we've got to do yeah. something about. But it. But I don't know where the fireflies but come where, in. I don't. <laughs> what what I don't get is the icy remoteness of this record. It yeah. is so like arm's length. The singing is. It's there's a lot of drones in this record. There's a no lot of per, drones. There's no percussion on this record. No, it's just atmosphere. He sort of his voice is sort of recessed in the background. It's just another texture on the record. It reminds me, you know, he's a big fan of gospel music, etc. Mm-hmm. There, I feel like I am in a church, and I'm at a funeral at that church, and the funeral is for this planet, and it yeah. just sort of drones on and on and on, and it's very it's sad. Not, it's not a gospel church. It, it's it's an English uh, church yeah, of it's England. A monks, a bunch of monks yeah, in, yeah. Uh, in the medieval monastery. Very tightly wound yeah. preacher lecturing us. The most visceral moment is in that song you played, Garden of Stars. It, yeah. There's this kind of swell of feedback and static and noise, and I go... Yeah, more of that, you know, more right. of that sort of like, I'm angry or I'm, I'm upset. We need to, you know, shake me by the collar and let's say, well, let, let's do something here. You know, you know? In, in, in his many interviews, and interviews are as much of an art form for Brian Eno as making records or producing records. You know, he has always characterized those first four albums. I'm talking Here Come the Warm Jets through Before and After Science as being fueled by the, quote, idiot energy of rock and roll. Right. And so having matured and having invented many other genres, ambient music and 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 a sort of, uh, you know, Miles Davis like jazz fusion ambient style. Right. You know, um, he's always been about moving forward. And I don't think he's ever wanted to go back to the idiot energy, but he hasn't been able to fuse as he did on those albums in the many since the rhythmic invention of those records. Because you're right. I mm-hmm. mean, the percussion on those records and the drumming are, are extraordinary with the uh, flair for melody and pop songs. He, he loved doo-wop. He loved rock and roll. He was a big fan of the Velvet Underground. And um, I think he's lost that ability, you know. Uh, and, and, and this album is a disappointment because he's got a topic and he is singing. He just leaves out the idiot energy. And what's, yeah. you know, what's wrong with that? I know you're hitting 70, whatever, Brian, but, you know, it's fun to be an idiot. Yeah. My entire career with this show, yeah. We open to the blinding sky And let it in And let it in That's what we thought about the music from Rina Sawayama and Brian Eno. Now it is your turn. Let, let us know on our Facebook group or in our Patreon community. Or leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, so we can play it on the show. Coming up, our conversation with video games critic Todd Martins on Sound Opinions. And we are back. 
Today we're talking about something we've never really talked about in depth before. There's always new topics, Greg. Video game music. We've been told by some of our listeners about the rise of video game soundtracks, and we thought it would be a good idea to bring on someone who could teach us a little bit about them, an expert in the field. We had the chance to talk to the video game critic of the Los Angeles Times, and he's a longtime friend of ours, uh, Todd Martins. Uh, you know, we've admired his writing, he's admired our writing, allegedly. <laughs> you know? But Todd was writing about pop music for a long time before Great he critic, transitioned yeah. into video game stuff. And we're kind of on the same plane with him with the pop music stuff in terms yeah. of our understanding of it. We kind of know. the video game territory is, was new for us. And, and Todd really, I think, did a great job of uh, educating us. He, he chatted with us about how music within games has evolved over the last decade or mm-hmm. so. Neither Greg or I are gamers. I haven't played anything since Tetris, <laughs> which I love dearly. And, you know, you make... The point in in schooling us a little bit that there were cool sounds in those early games like Space Invaders, uh, you know, outer space explosions, right? And kind of kind of a Russian repeating folk melody in Tetris and Super Mario Brothers. But essentially, music as video games exploded into an art form. I, I believe they are. You know, music was a secondary consideration at first because all of the space in the tech of these games was needed for the games. Absolutely correct. I mean, yeah, when you look at the space of video game music, I think, you know, certainly people remember those video game sounds of the 80s and the 90s, and lots of people can hum that Super Mario Brothers theme, you know, even if they only haven't played it in (laughs) decades, that do, 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 do. Yeah, I mean, so it's a technological evolution, too. I mean, so a lot of stuff that was happening was based on what could be what there was space to store on a cartridge, if you're talking about video game consoles, what there was a space, what a sound card could do if you're talking about home computers. So that's why there was, you know, this birth of this sort of movement called chiptune, which was this very digital focused sound. Mm-hmm. Like I said, there was still cool stuff. Like you pointed out the Tetris sort of drawing from Russian folklore. Um, you know, so they still found ways to be experimental and musical within that space. But over the last couple of decades, especially in Western video games, Uh, I think music was always a little bit more appreciated in Japan in terms of the video game space. But in Western media, it's really sort of exploded that I would say it's as comparable or um, perhaps even like more experimental or more weird than what you see in film and television scores. Well, you represent a good chunk of our listeners. There's probably a a bunch of our listeners that are gamers and are already well-versed in the music that's on there. But you... I think, approach it from a standpoint of where a lot of our listeners are at, which is they're kind of looking askance at videos, the video game culture as, you know, musical. Like, what's good about it? Why should I pay attention to it? And you were in that latter category, right? You, you You were skeptical. As a fine music critic, as well as a video game critic. I think it's important to point out, I mean, I I did write about music before I wrote about video games. And I always, you know, even though I was playing games, I wasn't necessarily looking at games. I was kind of looking down on video game music. I saw it as a secondary sort of thing. I remember when I went to college, I met a doormate just making small talk. And I was like, what kind of music do you listen to? And, you know, he said, all I really listen to are video game soundtracks. And I was like, floored. I wanted to talk about all sorts of pretentious (laughs) indie rock. But no, I mean, I was incorrect. There was um, really a lot of musical stuff happening in that space. And I think in the video game space, you do have a lot of stuff that is um, a little bit more pop oriented. 
than maybe you'll see more regularly in, in film or television where we tend to think of big sort of cinematic scores. You know, I was thinking about this topic and I was thinking about this topic uh, for to talk to you guys about it just because and not to pin you know too much on the Grammys or to make the Grammys sound super important. But, you know, the Grammys did add a specific video game music category. Mm -hmm. And those kind of things, you know, like I said, we all have issues with the Grammys, but those kind of things bring attention to like niche genres and niche format. So I thought it was just a good time to sort of maybe highlight what's been going on, you know, the last couple of years. No, it, it absolutely is. I, I mean, we have had several music supervisors on the show over the years, and the space opened up by long-form cable shows, limited edition series and adventurous television to musicians to reach new audience. Whether they were old-time musicians, you know, handsome family in True Detective, yeah, right? Sure. Or musicians now crafting music, you know, because the worlds of film, television, and video games are merging. Mm -hmm. They really are. And so music is an integral part of that. What was the turning point Todd, as a lifelong music fan and a music critic, that you said, wow, I've got to pay more attention to these soundtracks. I think for me, the point where I sort of had that awakening was in 2011, there was a game called uh, Super Brothers uh, Sword and Sorcery EP. It was a mobile focused game, kind of this 8-bit looking sort of fantastical game where you're this uh, sort of nameless character. Kind of, It's kind of obscure going through this fantastical sort of world just pointing and clicking. And a Canadian musician by the name of uh, Jim Guthrie, he's played in some indie pop bands, uh, I think Islands and uh, Royal City among them. I'll, I'll be honest, Jim Guthrie wasn't somebody I knew by name, but that soundtrack had this mixture of sort of vintage video game feel. Guthrie has spoken in the past about using musical tools on a PlayStation 1 to help craft some of his music with sort of organic guitar effects. But the guitar effects were a little bit mysterious. It was sort of an indie pop soundtrack that had this electoral orchestral but everything was kind of vague and kind of timeless. There was like a sort of mysticism sort of uh, in, in the air to the music. And I started to pay attention to it because, um, you know, it wasn't purely electronic. It wasn't purely like a big symphonic score, like a video game trying to mimic, you know, a, a big blockbuster movie. It was very sort of understated. That was something that was like, I need to pay more attention. I need to know what's going on here. Is it about you know because this music is essentially background music it, it's not foregrounded like it it's not like oh now we're going to stop and we're going to hear this song like you might in a in a broadway show or uh you know a film which is using a lot of music sometimes the images on the screen will be backgrounded to the music because the, the director wants to highlight that that doesn't happen at all in video games, right? It's both mostly background music. I think we've started to move away from that a little bit. You know, there were games like around the time of Sword and Sorcery, there was a game called uh, Ho Hokum, which is essentially a visual album. And the studio tap electronic artists from an indie label, Ghostly International, to do sort of these chill out sort of vibes for that uh, soundtrack. And, you know, it was very much meant to be listened to and you were supposed to sort of move in time with the movements.
I think some of the thinking started to change where video game music could be more than just background music was if you look at a game like uh, Myst, which is one of the best-selling uh, PC games of all time, you know, that game didn't originally have a score because the designer, uh, Robin Miller, thought it would distract from the game. So like late in development, he decided to sort of tinker with making an, a very ambient score. It's very atmospheric. It's very quiet. If you were to listen to it for enjoyment, it'd be something to put on late at night. It would be something to put on as background music if you were reading or cooking. It sort of mimics the feel of the game and that sort of the music is sort of puzzled together and it sort of creates this contemplative idea, this contemplative feel where sort of the rhythmic clacks sort of build on one another. So it feels very much like a puzzle piece as a musical composition. And I think that was when composers and maybe even fans, especially in the West, started to think of music as something more than just pure background music that was looped over and over. I'm going to quote Todd Martins here to Todd Martins. Uh, <laughs> you feel that video game soundtracks are a place where more risks are being taken than in film or television soundtracks. That's a pretty bold statement, too. Well, that's a bold statement. I, I think certainly there are places, if you have big blockbuster games, like you know the Halos of the world and the Destinies of the world, I think those sort of take their cues from blockbuster films, like you know the Star Wars-type films and the John Williams-type composers. But I think if you look at, like, especially if you look at what's happening in the independent game space in, over the last couple of years, specifically, if you just wanted to focus on like newer stuff, I think you'd see beyond sort of the licensing model of like going and finding big artists, I think you'll see a lot of original pop songs written for video games. I think you'll see a mixture of like weird electronic sounds mixed in with those pop songs. I think the video game audience is like hungry for lots of content. And I think you're seeing a space that is maybe overlooked. It's a younger medium. It doesn't have sort of the institutional knowledge of like film and television. So you're seeing composers who are like, you know, what if we try this? Or what if we create an interactive music video in a song? Or what if we create a song where you're actually choosing the lyrics in the game? And like all those things have started to sort of uh, happen. I wouldn't want to denigrate um, what's happening in other mediums or other spaces, but I think what's happening in the video game space is a level of interactivity in music that you're not seeing. And that's really mimicking what's going on in, in the game. I just wanted to double back for a second, and I'm going to betray my ignorance of gaming, which I do think is an art form. I've had, had many students in reviewing the arts, my classes, make the uh, eloquent argument. And they seem to always be attracted to the more obscure abstract, artistic kind of games, right? As opposed to what they called a, a term I never knew before, first-person shooter, right? You know, <laughs> I'm the tank commander, I blow things up, right? So we're talking about it's no longer... I chop the orc's head off, and I hear a certain bit of music every time I do that. There's more of a journey through the dungeons of the castle in search of orcs and maybe getting eaten by one that's ever-shifting. Is that what you're saying? You know, especially those games you pointed out. You know, if you're looking in the independent game space, the first game sort of soundtrack to sort of really get mainstream acclaim was probably a Austin Winery's score for a Journey. That was recognized for a 2013 Grammy. And that's kind of a very interesting score to me. It has, it does have these sort of ambient electronics. It does have a little bit of orchestral flourishes, 
but it also has this tinges of like Eastern mysticism um, that sort of flowed in and flowed out. And this was a, supposed to be a meditative sort of relaxing game where you just float through these desert landscapes and you sort of occasionally interact with another player who's completely anonymous and you can only communicate with this other player by visual cues. But the music really sort of referenced that and sort of guided you. The music was sort of a, an extended hand to sort of look in different areas, prod you to sort of move in different areas. Um, it had this very floaty sort of feel. That was a soundtrack that sort of wasn't designed to be background music and it wasn't designed to just mimic an action you took. It was designed to sort of prod you into this universe to explore. When we return, more of our conversation about video game music. Plus, we'll hear messages from you, our listeners. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. We've been talking with LA Times video game critic Todd Martins about video game soundtracks. Now let's dive into some of his favorites. Well, you helpfully, Professor Martins, uh, made us a um, playlist that I've been indulging in for a couple of weeks. The stuff I'm drawn to tends to sound either like Can, (laughs) Krautrock band from the early 70s, or Aphex Twin, god of uh, ambient electronic music. Aphex Twin, Richard D. James, has done some music. He did, what, an EP remix of Pac-Man? I'd have to look up the exact year, but he did do an EP remix under a a pseudonym, you know, that was just Pac-Man sound. Well, I guess my question to you is, let's talk about the business before we talk about the art. Why not license a Can track? Can't be that expensive. Who listens to Can besides Jim, Greg, and Todd? or an Aphex Twin track. What's in it for the artists who are making this music for games? It's really interesting because you have, um, you know, there are composers who have started in the video game space, like uh, Michael Giacchino, who's done, you know, such great work for uh, Pixar and today does a number of blockbuster films for Marvel and other studios. Um, He started in the video game space doing Medal of Honor. So I think from a business perspective, I think they recognize that the audiences want something that is tailored to the game and tailored to them. It is an opportunity for them to reach out to younger composers, younger artists, uh, perhaps in the electronic space who you know don't have a ton of recognition yet. Um, when I mentioned Austin Winery doing that journey score, I think he was you know um, in his mid twenties when he did that. You know, so these are opportunities for uh, composers who are more you know in developing stages of their career. You know, in terms of why spend the money on it. I think game players will turn on you um, pretty quickly, and it's a very, <laughs> it's a very vocal <laughs> medium. You know, if you just put something in there that's looped over and over and over and over, the game would very quickly um, be under a lot of criticism. So I think they're trying to sort of split the ground between having original music. Yeah, I love what was be- between the lines there of what Todd was saying. He thought getting out of music criticism, he'd get less guff <laughs> from readers uh, than video game. And, and there's no such thing. Like, you're going to be a critic. You're going to take. Yeah. Yeah, right. Shots on the chin nonstop. And that's also to say that it's also become an industry. You know, there are video game tours. Um, you know, Final Fantasy was one of the first to do sort of an international tour. And one of their composers, you know, played with the L.A. Philharmonic at one point. I think these has become big business in terms of touring. Also, it's become a pretty sort of collectible business. You know, video game vinyl goes for a, a lot of money. There's a company here mm. in Los Angeles called I Am 8-Bit. They specialize in uh, publishing 
limited edition sort of uh, video game soundtracks on vinyl. I have a couple. So yeah, I think there's a, an industry of video game composers who have a little bit more freedom. Game players want to feel something that is authentic and is like authored to the game. And, you know, a little industry, the fact that an industry of touring and vinyl sales has sprung out about it certainly doesn't hurt. It's interesting, too, how this is, it sounds like a potential booming revenue stream for music makers at a time when there aren't oral there oral are none. revenue streams. Yeah. <laughs> because there's an incredible amount of popularity, these video games, they, they sell, they're pricey, right? I mean, you're talking about a serious amount of money. My question, though, Todd, is I'm fascinated by the process, the creation of, of those soundtracks. They've got to be to work so concurrently with what the you know, with what's going on in the game. So, what's the relationship between the creator of the visuals and the guy who's doing the music? I mean, are they one and the same, or are they working together, or does the guy create the visuals and then he says, "Okay, do something with this music-wise"? It's not like you can just make a song up and okay, just stick this in the movie somewhere or stick this in the TV show somewhere. This has got to be integrated, right? It's very much uh, a seamless uh, kind of thing. So how does that work? If you look at like video game score soundtracks, a lot of the tracks will just be like a minute uh, long or you know 90 seconds long. So they're creating a lot of music that depending on what the game needs, you know, games are so complex today, the game engine can just sort of slot in depending on what direction the character goes or what direction you drive the character they can just sort of slot in these little tidbits or these little bits and pieces here and there. And then if you look at sort of bigger game soundtracks like The Last of Us Part Two, or if you look at stuff that's happening in the indie game space where the music is more uh, interactive with you, I think the, the composers there are brought in pretty early. It's not the same as what you see in film and television where you're scoring to a picture. You know, you'll be given uh, animatics, you'll be given concept art, you'll be given uh, scenes to sort of look at from the game, and you'll sort of be sort of charged with trying to up with a mood and a feel but uh, a lot of the stuff is brought in pretty early in the early days i think they would tack on you know story dressings the, the music and the writing sort of at the end of the video game process process but that doesn't happen anymore uh, composers are brought in pretty early and mm. the idea is to create enough music depending on what you as the player do in the game that there's an audio cue ready to go for it oh wow that's amazing all right, give us two or three songs. Yeah, we're going to make the uh, Los Angeles Times video yeah. game critic go back to his roots as the uh, rock critic who grew up reading us. Uh, okay, you say the music's so good. Okay, <laughs> prove it to me. Give me give me two or three songs yeah, Desert that Island blow tracks. my mind. Now, this is a lot of pressure because now I don't know if you'll like these songs. <laughs> when does that ever matter? You're the you? expert, yeah. though. You know that stuff. And listen, you're coming from the same world all of, all of the listeners to the show are, which is you're really into music. Yeah. So we trust you, Todd. Give us what you love. So instead of going back and looking at the last 40 years of video game music, I did want to focus on stuff that was pretty uh, recent so people could sort of get a sense of what was happening now and get a sense of, you know, stuff they may uh, start to see crop up now that there is a Grammy uh, category for video game music. So the first thing I wanted to highlight was uh, a song called uh, Follow Unfollow by the band is credited as OFK. That is from the game uh, We Are OFK. It was released summer of 2022, so it's a pretty recent game. And it's a visual sort of novel, interactive TV show sort of game. Um, each episode, of, it's released in five parts. Each episode of the game is uh, 45, 50 minutes. So it's essentially a TV show that you play. And it's very light, interactive. Anybody can play it. If you haven't played a video game ever before in your life, you can pick up a controller and you can play We Are OFK. Sorry for the follow, unfollow. I'll be on my best behavior. 
it's a game that deals with sort of 20-somethings in Los Angeles, and the music reflects that. Uh, so the music was written by a couple artists in Los Angeles, Thomas Powers and a producer by the name of uh, Luna Shadows. They're best known for working in a Los Angeles band called uh, The Naked and the Famous. <laughs> Whatever you may think of the band, uh, don't hold that against them here. Think of... Uh, what they created for this game in conjunction with the game uh, designers, and they worked incredibly closely with uh, Teddy DF. And Teddy is the uh, co one of the co-creators of the game. He also sings the song. And they are these very sort of light, very synth pop, very danceable sort of songs. They have a little bit of electronic. They're trying to sort of extend beyond sort of what we think is sort of digital video game sounds. Follow, unfollow, um, I kind of like because lyrics sort of mirror sort of being a 20-something and trying to figure out your job, trying to figure out dating, especially in the social media landscape. It's a very sort of, you know, glittery song. So that was a song I wanted to uh, highlight and it's a, a new song and it's, the music was released uh, by a division of uh, Sony. So they got a big major label behind them as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, that's Follow, Unfollow by OFK. Todd's given us some of his favorite recent standout music from, from the video game world. What, what's your next pick? Dead of Night. Um, this was from a game called uh, Sayonara Wild Hearts that was released in 2019 by a Swedish studio called uh, Simogo. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But it was my uh, favorite game of 2019. It does fall into a little bit more of the rhythmic category of games in that you're trying to move to uh, the beats of the music at times. They consider it a visual album, and you play a character who is um, soaring through this dreamlike metaphorical world to try to sort of make sense of romance and heartbreak. It's a game about personal growth, about coming out of uh, heartbreak and sort of coming out of it stronger at the end, and you just fly through these psychedelic sort of kaleidoscope universes. <laughs> You know, the song was written by uh, composer Daniel Osen with uh, the writer uh, Jonathan Eng. Jonathan also worked for the game company. So um, again, you know, these, this music is done very closely in conjunction with the production of the games. And a Swedish artist, uh, Celeste Lienia Olsen, I hope I got that right. She was the uh, vocalist. Uh, what you hear in the song is a very heavy 80s pop influence with um, some modern EDM flourishes. A contemporary band, it sounds very similar maybe to a band like uh, Churches, you know, who mm. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. A lot of what he said was just ancient Greek to me. I have no <laughs> idea. But yeah, Churches, yeah, I know them, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, music, yeah. Uh, but it's a very fast sound, it's very sleek, it's meant to feel the game. It's meant to match the feel of the game, which is a very fast sort of game where you're flying through these these digital worlds. You can hear some video game effects in the background, and you can hear sort of a lot of like repetitive bouncing notes playing with the idea of like a video game score. You hear sort of these nods to like the chiptune era in the background. But I, I think it's all about sort of bouncing you forward. Give us one more, Todd. You got a huge playlist, which I think we'll probably be able to share. W what would be a third track that you would uh, highlight? I think if I'm going to have to pick one more and call it a day, I think I would sort of go with uh, Too Late to Love You. And that's from mm. the game uh, Kentucky Route Zero. That was released um, over the span of a decade by um, some Chicago-based artists. Ben Babbitt was the uh, composer. He went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Why I picked this song, you know, there are other songs I really, really love in video game music, but why I picked this song in particular is because it's an example of 
a song that is interactive in the game. In the presentation of the game, you will pick uh, lyrics of the song and the song will gently shift its tone based on the lyrics that you pick. And you could sit back and not pick lyrics and just let the background music sort of play. And it's a scene set in a sort of a dive bar sort of game. It shows how in the game space, music can be interactive. Um, it's a very magical realistic realism game dealing with despair, dealing with the post economic crisis of 2008 and sort of, sort of trying to humanize the idea of being homeless and um, what it means to live paycheck to paycheck. But the song is uh, very woozy. It's kind of a electronic take on sort of a languid folksy song. Uh, it's a tale of like unrequited love and heartbreak. It has a very light, contemplative, kind of melancholic atmosphere. One thing about the song I should note is the vocals are credited to a Junebug. Junebug is not a real person. That is the character in the game. <laughs> From what I've gathered, the vocals were um, digitally created. I believe they are Babbitt's voice, just heavily digitally manipulated. The vocals being so processed, it does create kind of this ghostly atmosphere to the track. You know, it, what you just said sort of reminded me a little bit of the Gorillaz concept, where, the, you know, especially on the first tour, it was, you know, these kind of cartoons that were essentially supposedly the band <laughs> and obviously that wasn't the case but it was creating this fantasy world uh, that was visual to go with the with the music i think the interactivity too i yeah. mean eno for years has been experimenting with releasing tracks inviting listeners to remix them and right. other electronic artists have done that the video game until you begin to play it is a piece of art that's not completed mm -hmm. and it seems as if these musicians are uh, the most interesting of them if if i'm asked to choose the lyric, you know, I am I have to take part in making that music. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And um, I think, you know, the space is attracting, you know, pop artists. And, um, you know, there was a game last year called Sable that was composed by uh, the group Japanese Breakfast, you know, and that's a beautiful score as well. Well, now, Todd, I've read uh, your video game reviews in the Los Angeles Times, and, and you deal with the music as part of the game experience. Is there as yet a dedicated uh, video game music reviewer somebody out there who's just doing music from games if there is i have to confess i haven't found that person i know there are sites you know that, that dedicate a lot of uh, article space to video game music i'm sure somewhere on youtube media in the video game space is so heavily reliant on um, digital creators on like youtube and other sort of social media on twitch and platforms like that I'm sure there is somebody who is an expert on video game music who is doing that that um, I don't know about yet. Yeah, why bother to write anymore, Greg? <laughs> you know. Well, we've been talking to Todd Martins, who writes extensively about music for uh, the Los Angeles Times, particularly in the video game area now. Todd, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, thank you so much for having me. It was, a, it was a lifelong dream and a pleasure to talk. That wraps up our show on video game music. We might have to revisit this topic in the future again, Greg. But right now we want to hear from you. What's your favorite piece of new video game music and why? Leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. And speaking of those voice messages, let's hear a couple now. New messages. This is Tim checking in from Nashville, Tennessee. Love the show. Love Marissa's book, Her Country. And I think it's very worthwhile 
to check out the artist Melissa Carper and her album, Daddy's Country Gold. Tell me if that isn't one of the best country albums put out in the last couple of decades. It is punk as you know what. Check it out. Melissa Carper, Daddy's Country Gold. I'm making memories I'd like to remember. I'm meeting new people I'd like to recall. Hi, this is Eric from Newton, Massachusetts, and I'm telling you guys, you just have to listen to White Jesus' Black Problems by Fantastic Negrito. It came out this June. It's got to be one of the best records of the year. The story, the performances, the songs, it's just wonderful. I think you guys would love it, so check it out. Thanks. Sound Opinions, it's Tim from Chicago. A buried treasure band I've been loving lately is Teen Mortgage. They're a garage surf punk band out of DC, and they just consistently have been putting out great tracks. Definitely don't get enough attention. Thanks. Love the show. I don't know if you guys know this, but um, apparently Paul Westerberg, the frontman of The Replacements, and maybe one of the greatest rock and roll songwriters ever, in my opinion, supposedly has a new album that uh, people have been hearing, you know, under the table style, play it for your friend kind of thing. Maybe you guys, I don't know, should investigate. I sure would love a new Paul Westerberg album. Hey guys, uh, this is Jimmy No Legs from Detroit. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, the Mercy Seat, that is my pick for a desert island. It's just amazing, all the stuff that Nick Cave does, but I absolutely love that song, and I hope you guys can play that. I'd be honored. I just listened to the show about spooky music and I had to leave a voicemail about the best spooky music album, Dead Men's Bones. It's great. And y'all should feature it on the show. That is all. Burn the streets, burn the cars, power, Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Kyle from Big Bend, Wisconsin. I think it would be great if your segment on Sound Opinions could study and review the first five albums from The Scorpions. Now, it's easy to think of Rocky Like a Hurricane and big stadiums and sellouts and lost hair from old age, but 
if you evaluate the first five albums, they're very bluesy, they're very tuby, and it's a great transition from the hippie rock from the 60s to rock and roll of the 80s. So it's a very interesting view. Many of the songs are very seriously written, very well written, very melodic, and kind of take you down a path. So it would be great if your Sound Opinions team could take a look at the first five albums. Tim Nordstrom here in Billings, Montana. I listened to your show on the sea, and your picks were, well, nothing like you could have done with Sea and Sand from Quadrophenia. The Who have been underrated with this particular album, in my opinion. That song in particular with Daltrey and Townsend's back and forth vocals with Townsend's staccato stops on his guitar that are so unique to him. And man, just Give Quadrophenia another listen out there. It is one of the best albums of all time. messages thanks again to everyone who left us a message you can leave yours on our website soundopinions.org mr cott what's on the show next week next week jim uh, real pleasure to catch up with namdi who i think is one of the most innovative artists in the art pop realm uh, of the last uh, five years yeah and uh, do not forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts lots of good stuff For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Lauren Holt, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. I don't really want to be famous though I just called my agent up They said that my price went up I said nah that's not enough Now that you can see me always dropping freebies They still call me greedy though We got bills that's adding up Trying to get my status up I don't really want to be